Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, joined by my co-host and editor of News Data's California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. News Data covers the energy sector in California, the Northwest, and beyond like no one else. Here's some of our top stories, but first, Jason, how are you doing? Doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm uh, down here I'm, in San yeah, Diego. I'm good. I'm good. But yeah, I want to hear. You're down at the National Association. What? You're at Nairuk. Remind Nairuk. Yep. What does Nairuk stand for again? It's Utility Nash- Commissioners. National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. One of the more unwieldy names. Yeah. But, so uh, you're down at their annual conference in San Diego, sunny San Diego. How's it going? What's, yeah. What are you hearing? What's the chatter about? It's great. Yeah, it's their uh, summer policy summit. Um, NARUC, of course, has you know state regulators from all around the country um, and, and uh, just discussing many relevant topics. With, I covered a panel yesterday on affordability and reliability. That seems to be a big theme right now. Um, and then transmission, of course, is a big topic. And then tomorrow, the uh, federal state transmission task force will be holding a meeting. Um, so, yeah, some some good uh, discussions. Um, the panel discussion yes yesterday um, really focusing on reliability. The the PGM CEO Manu Astana, uh, just for some quotes that I have here, reliability of the bulk power system I think is non negotiable. Hmm. Uh, the system has to remain reliable. And but he did mention there are customers that have tolerance for what he said less reliability, really referring to demand response, which uh, got a little bit of pushback from other people on the panel saying that's not really a reliability problem. You know, it's intentional, um, interesting shedding of load. Um, Carolyn Choi from Southern California Edison said we we don't need to sacrifice reliability to transition to a new economy. And then there was a Google executive, Brianna Kobor, said it's about starting to have a deeper two-way conversation on the electric grid, um, says there's immense opportunity there. Yeah. And then, yep. Uh, so a little, you know, different attitudes, I think, with uh, Jim Robb from uh, NERC was there uh, talking about, you know, the latest reliability assessment and really a lot of, you know, two thirds of the country is looking at reliability risks right now for various reasons. Yeah, it really is a pressing issue. <laughs> I wonder if anybody, yeah, uh, be interesting to have somebody from ERCOT be on that panel. Oh, uh, yeah. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I can't wait to read uh, whatever you write about it. I know the, when they get together, it's always interesting to hear where those conversations are, especially right now, uh, given how many issues are kind of just coming to a head uh, slowly, but kind of like glaciers coming to a head um, Yeah, in the industry. And, um, it's always interesting to see this sort of different attitudes from different states um, and then the federal interaction, you know, not always a harmonious relationship. Um, and, but events like this are really good, I think, at building the trust and building the communication between states and, and FERC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll have a f- couple stories from this uh, All right, in so Friday's issue. 
Yeah, so listeners, check that out. Well, speaking of big issues moving slowly, so we had two stories this week that are, at this point, are going to be kind of old news for our listeners, but I feel like it would be remiss to not talk about them. So the Lower Snake River Dams, uh, the White House Council on Environmental Quality released two studies that the CEQ did not actually do. One was commissioned by BPA, Bonneville Power Administration, uh, looking at the cost of replacing the energy attributes of the Lower Snake River dams. The other one was from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. Uh, oh, wait, no, I'm getting that wrong. Uh, NOAA. NOAA, yeah. What is the ACE? I uh, just slipped my mind. NOAA. Oceanic and Atmospheric, Atmospheric Administration. Administration? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking, I was trying to add another word in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the we, other we have to so deal with was, a lot of acronyms. Yeah, it's more than I can stand. Um, <laughs> the NOAA had a paper, a draft report on what needs to be done for salmon and other endangered species on the Lower Snake River, which is part of the Columbia River Basin. Uh, some of the federal hydropower dams in the Northwest are on the Lower Snake. And so these two papers were timed to come out at the same time. Uh, Again, they were commissioned by other federal agencies, but the White House has kind of taken the lead on the messaging here. The White House has been running since last October a series of conversations with various stakeholders in the region about the future of these dams that uh, have a play a huge role in a lot of different industries and also significant in the climate uh, and the the ecosystem of the rivers and the, the river basin, uh, sure. which, you know, obviously salmon, steelhead, other fishes, other fish species, salmonid species are um, really taken it, yeah, just struggling to hang on. And so the NOAA report said that like reaching these uh, is going to be necessary to reach a healthy and harvestable return of salmon and steelhead to the Columbia Basin by 2050. But that alone uh, won't be enough to do to reach some of the goals outlined by the Columbia Basin Partnership Task Force. Uh, that you know their goals go beyond preventing extinction, which is the bare minimum. Then on the other side, the BP, uh, BPA commissioned report looked at what's going to cost to replace these dams, uh, which most of the it, they had six different. Two scenarios, three different outcomes for each scenario. So it's kind of like six different. Uh, I mean, they can't call them scenarios because they, but yeah, basically six different scenarios. Uh, and they most of them ranged in cost from eleven to twenty billion, replacing the energy attributes of the dams, the four dams, uh, which put out have a roughly capacity of. Uh, 2300 megawatts of firm peaking capacity uh and so the cost generally of replacing them between 11 billion and 20 billion dollars but that's if it includes thermal generation to uh, make up for some of to maintain that reliability the resource adequacy of the system replacing them without that uh without any thermal generation so zero carbon replacement uh zero carbon emission replacement that price tag Estimated the estimated price tag skyrockets skyrockets to forty two billion to seventy seven billion. So Yikes. that that is obviously a non starter. But 
the the lower costs were actually fairly in line with some of the other estimates that have been put out by in various uh, studies reports over the past few years. And uh, the White House has not taken a position on this, but it seems to be the timing of these two reports and some of the comments that uh, administration officials made during a press briefing Tuesday, last Tuesday, uh, indicates that they are erected Monday, sorry. Um, it, it seems like mm-hmm. they're leaning towards possibly breaching. Uh, again, they, the White House didn't come out and say as much, but uh, clearly the timing of these two studies seems to say, look, it's expensive, but not prohibitively. And uh, there's really no, you know, it looks like there's no other option if we're going to keep these fish species from going extinct. Wow. That, uh, you know, the, in, within minutes, uh, you had several lawmakers around the Northwest coming out in opposition to the position that the administration seems to be taking. So we're just getting started on this one. I know we've already talked about it a bunch, but uh, like this is buckle in for the long ride, people. This will be a political fight. Um, a long time yeah Yeah, um, a couple thoughts i'm surprised that it would take to 2050 to restore the fish population um kind of classic environmental versus infrastructure uh debate i guess yeah and that up to 77 billion that's replacement power that doesn't include the cost of actually taking the dams down right no no those yeah that that cost was not in there that doesn't include the value this provides to like irrigation, transportation, recreation. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, got to protect the fish. I think, yeah, that, that debate will be going on for a while. I'm sure. I mean, it just gets so complicated so quickly because like the, the transportation thing, I mean, there's a lot of wheat and other farm goods that are barged down out you know, to the Pacific um, mm-hmm. and it, the river steps, the dams, these eight dams that it has to go through on the four in the lower snake. And I think it's four in the Columbia, but you know, eight, nine, whatever it, it they all step it down like 800 feet. Um, wow. And so there's a lot of goods that would have to go by rail or truck and mm-hmm. I mean, there you're talking about potentially new emissions too, or not potentially, you'd be you know, having add-in emissions. So there's, it's just a very complicated uh, yeah. thing to sort out, trying to figure out what's the best option. Oof. Yeah. Makes some brain hurt. I uh, know. And just some staggering numbers and a complicated issue, as you said. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, you had some comments that, uh, from FERC Chairman Glick. Yep. Uh, FERC Chairman Richard Glick recently uh, had a speech at the Mid-Sea Conference, uh, the Mid-Sea Seminar in Wenatchee, Washington on July 12th. Transmission, another big topic. Um, but, you know, FERC has always had kind of a light touch in the West, but you can really tell that uh, Chairman Glick is laser focused on getting more transmission built. Uh, as I said, the task force will be meeting here tomorrow. Um, 
but he discussed other issues in the West. He, he did mention uh, stimulating new transmission development as a big one, also moving towards an organized energy market in the region, something we're very familiar with, and freeing up clogged interconnection queues. FERC, of course, has the notice of proposed rulemaking on transmission planning and cost allocation, that dialogue being shaped through the task force. Um, he said the changing Western resource mix is creating challenges, but also opportunities. There's a large transmission buildout needed to integrate planned wind and solar. Um, FERC is spending a lot of time on the issue of how to promote investment in the West. And he said transmission planning has not been anticipatory enough so far. Yeah. He said, quote, quote, there are a lot of benefits interregional transmission can provide, uh, including helping states meet carbon reduction goals by bringing in clean power from other regions. Yeah, one thing I, I was listening into his comments, one thing that struck me, though, is he uh, was very careful to say, we believe, FERC, at least if speaking for himself, he sees the value of like an RTO or an ISO, an organized market, and mm -hmm. but they're not going to push entities to join one and recognizing at the same time that if there is a, an organized market, but it only includes um, FERC jurisdiction or yeah. IOUs, basically IOUs, investor sorry. owned utilities, um, then it it's not going to work in the West. Yeah. So he's really saying like, look, we want a market in part to drive all that trans the transmission uh, benefits that you're just listing off. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but FERC can't use its bully pulpit to kind of cajole people into one because without the public owned, uh, the consumer owned utilities out here just wouldn't fly and right. recognizing that. Yeah. And governance being the big issue in the West, most of the Western states don't want an RTO that is managed by Kaiso. Um, you know, they're still talking about the 2000 energy crisis here at this conference, and uh, that has left kind of a black mark on California. And then, you know, blackouts in August 2020. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I've been covering transmission for 20 years, and I've, I've seen big, fancy efforts. The bottom line is people don't like transmission lines and that is the local opposition I've been saying is always the biggest obstacle. A little bit easier in the West, very, very difficult in the East, you know, um, so you tend to have uh, rural landowners, they don't like these lines and you're definitely not coming to welfare country and saying, hey, we, we want to build a line through the woods here. Yeah. So, yeah. Well. I mean, and as you noted with the, uh, well, yeah, and so much, we need more transmission to decarbonize and to make sure we've got a reliable uh, and resource adequate system. And with that in mind, um, you know, the Western Re Resource Adequacy Program has been stand, is in the process of getting implemented across the West, uh, across the large part of the West. The uh, Western Power Pool, formerly the Northwestern Power Pool, uh, just released last week its draft tariff for the resource adequacy program. And it outlined the proposed allocation of administrative fees, punitive charges if uh, 
participant doesn't have adequate resources uh, going into the season um, and various other structures, uh, mechanisms of how the program will work. Uh, it also verified some of the governance questions and it's, you know, the architecture, governance architecture framework of the independent program. The, the draft, of course, came out right as we were on deadline last week, but I was fortunate enough to connect with uh, somebody um, over at the Western Power Pool to help me parse through some of the key details of the paper. And uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting though, pretty, pretty meaty. So this is a draft that was released after being approved by the Resource Adequacy Participants Committee, the RAPC, so another acronym. Is, <laughs> no way there but so they the the committee of participants of the resource adequacy program uh approved the draft tariff they released it they're going to get uh stakeholder feedback potential participant feedback they want to file it with FERC uh, at the end of the summer to go live january 1st uh but it's still in the nine non-binding session or phase of the program so the idea of the program is um, that you know if you've got extra, if you've got surplus capacity during uh, times when the system is tight, uh, summer and winter peaks, uh, you can you put it into this program and other participants that are uh, capacity deficit can you can like work out a deal. Um, it's basically, it's a program to. Make uh, to streamline, make it easier for entities to uh, maximize surplus capacity. Uh, so the they're hoping to go live uh, with a binding program, meaning that if you don't meet the requirements, you'd have to pay punitive fees um, in 2025. One interesting thing about this, the tariff, was that it, it extends the it basically uh, extended, created a phase-in process for entities, utilities that want to join but need some time to get to the point where they can meet the require the resource adequacy requirements. Uh, so it has this kind of like three-year uh, kind of phase for people to transition into the program that runs until 2028. Um, so hoping to cast a wider net. Right now, they've got 26 potential participants uh, with a shared load of, I think, of the estimated peak summer load uh, is nearly 67,000 megawatts. And they're spread out across 10 Western states and one Canadian province. I see. Wow. Well, great. Have you you've already done a story on this or? Yeah, yeah, it okay. came out right as we were going, right as uh, right up against deadline. Um, but I was able yeah. to get something in this latest issue, um, so right. that you can read more about that uh, draft tariff on our on our website, newsdata.com. Excellent. Well, nice job getting that in on deadline. That's never easy. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> but, uh, so, what else do you have going on down in uh, California? Well, California Energy Commission um, had a meeting last week. Um, they've been working on um, looking at offshore wind generation resources. CEC staffs working on a report 
designed to establish the offshore wind capacity that the agency agencies should be planning for. The study is looking at issues such as reliability and benefits to ratepayers and the grid. Uh, this is according to CEC's Elizabeth Huber. Um, preparation of the document is being guided by legislation known as AB 525, but the CEC has been working on this issue since October 2016. That's when the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management launched its California Intergovernmental Renewable Energy Task Force. One of the issues vexing California is that various agencies and entities, including the Biden administration and BOEM, I think that's how you say that, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, uh, they say different capacity goals for offshore wind. One iteration of the draft report lists three goals. Those are three gigawatts by 2030, 15 gigawatts by 2045, and up to 20 gigawatts by 2050. And it's difficult to determine a capacity goal without a public process, according to the CEC. Um, so we'll be looking for this report on offshore wind. A lot of discussion on this item, uh, offshore wind in the West Coast, off the West Coast is a big challenge because of the, the continental shelf and you need to build floating turbines and you need transmission capacity on shore. But the CEC is uh, looking at it pretty hard, and so is the federal government. So maybe we'll eventually see some turbines here. <laughs> oh, they're working on some already. Uh, at yeah. least, I mean, not building yet, but there there's some projects that are in the planning stages, right? Um, yeah. I, but Catalina, I, I can never remember. Anyway, mm -hmm. somewhere, somewhere down off the off the California coast. I know that. Yeah. And uh, again, I think coastal California residents are a tough sell for offshore turbines and, um, you know, a lot of issues around fishing and recreation. Mm, so yeah. It takes a lot of study and a lot of money. Of course. Okay. Right, well, uh, the last headline I want to let readers know about or listeners know about. Uh, so Bonneville Power Administration just released a concept paper about uh, basically making their pitch to consumer-owned utilities, public power customers as to why they should uh, renew with Bonneville when their current power, public power contracts expire in 2028. This is really Bonneville, like I said, making its pitch to the 140 plus uh, utilities that are its tier one preference customers that are the you know the statutory the reason that uh, you know, that Bonneville exists its statutory mandate um, to provide to market public power uh, you know at cheaply and affordably and reliably to these public power utilities uh, the there weren't too many surprises in the paper uh, my colleague Rick Adair goes through some of the changes really interesting read really worth taking a look at for anybody who's interested in, in this. And I mean, it, this is, it's one of these topics that's really dry and yet has such big implications for the future in the Northwest. And they're trying to figure out, these are 20 year contracts generally. And so uh, 2028, the current one expires. They're trying to come up with what happens after that. I mean, to put that in context, the last time they were negotiating a contract was, 20 years ago, right awesome. on the, you know, uh, it, it's think about where the industry was 20 years ago 
um, and where we are now and just how fast things have changed, even like the last five or 10 years and how much faster we're expecting them to change. And so one of the tricks, one of the uh, challenges is building in flexibility into these power products um, that they're, these contracts that they're trying to put together. So uh, it'll be a really fascinating thing to follow. And I definitely encourage people who want to have a better understanding of what's going on with public power in the Northwest to check out Rick's story. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's all for me, all right. Dan Cashpole. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, please rate and review this podcast and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you listen, and let other people know about it. Energy West is edited and produced by our colleagues, Sarah Wooten at Pioneer Utility Resources and Lucas Smith at Lucky Sound Studio. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at dcatchpole, and my co-host, Jason Forden, is on Twitter. He's at Fordney Energy. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can read more of our coverage at newsdata.com. Nobody covers energy in the West like we do. Follow us on Twitter. CEM is at CEM News Data. That's the letter CEM News Data. Clearing Up is at CU News Data. Again, that's the letter CU News Data. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.